That was a good one. That was, that was one good of the better ones. ones. This is a carbonation, um, I think. You gonna you gonna watch the NBA Finals tonight? Yeah, as soon as we're done with this, we gotta hop on, get that uh, game six action cranking. What time does it start? Uh, I think it starts at nine. So, Eastern? yeah. So yeah. we'll probably that we'll probably like miss a little bit of the first quarter. But that's all right. Yeah, uh, we'll survive. Um, well, we're back today with a guest who I had the privilege of standing next to for an entire summer at the Bluecoats for both of our age outs. Um, when you hear this cat's name, just Monarch Independent, Bluecoats, Troopers, the Academy, Santa Clara Vanguard. He's been all over the place. He has a wide range of experience from where he's taught and also who he's been taught by. But before we get into his background, welcome everyone to the Aged Out Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Fantini, and with me as always is... Evan Worrell. And remember, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe on iTunes. Uh, we're on Spotify, Podbean, although the important ones are more so iTunes and uh, Spotify and YouTube. Uh, every subscription helps the growth of the podcast and helps us move forward. Also, on top of those things, please follow the Instagram page and Facebook. It's all just Aged Out Podcast. Super simple to find. And so with that... We'll start by letting Taha kind of introduce himself, let him go over how he kind of got into the drumming activity, and then we'll just go from there. What's up, man? Cool. Not much, dude. Doing well. Thanks for hopping on from Texas. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Is it so hot down s- there? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like, our weathers are hot and hotter, and then we'll get <laughs> hurricanes. So, that's about it. It's a good mix. Oh, yeah, dude. How far? I guess... My geography from uh, Texas is pretty lackluster because most of the summers that I spent were driving through the middle of the night, halfway asleep. So where is Austin Central, Texas? Is that right? Yeah, Austin is more like yeah. central, south central-ish, and Houston is really far south, like south. On the, on the Gulf, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. All right. Sick. So how'd you get started? How'd you get your start? Uh, well, drumming, so like percussion obviously was just like – Starting in middle school, like you audition for band, you do that thing. But drum corps, um, one of my friends in eighth grade, actually, before I even knew what any of this was, was going to a drum corps show in Houston. And I went to that with them without knowing anything. The first group I ever saw was Santa Clara Vanguard 2004. Um, I knew nothing about that. Drums. Is a great, that's a great one. To right. <laughs> Literally um, all I knew is they had really cool hats. And they like bobbed their heads, which I thought was super cool. Uh, (laughs) And they played like super groovy stuff. So I always like that was what got me into it. And from there, you know, like back in the days of dial up internet, you know, watching the little AOL man try to run through um, and and connecting. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, and you would watch those like videos, let him buffer for like an hour or whatever of like Big Firth and innovative whatever you know with the little intros like they had like a little bass oh, guitar yeah. riff yeah uh, the old days. So, dude i would i would religiously watch those and try and transcribe them and stuff so i never i never thought i could do drum corps because you know there wasn't a lot of support down here parents and everything else but um i actually got tricked into auditioning for troopers in 2008 how did you get uh, tricked so back then again i'm going to date myself but aim aol instant messenger was like a big thing and one of my friends from like kind of a different part of Houston hit me up and was like, Hey, don't you live close to Stephen F. Austin high school? And I was like, Oh yeah. It's like right down the road. And he's like, there's like this drum club thing over there. You should like come out we can all drum. Like all of our friends are going. I was like, dope. Like what else am I going to do? You know, on a Friday night, like high school. Um, so I went out there and I just thought it was like literally like you're drumming. So I ended up just going there drumming with a bunch of people. And then Brian Stevens, who was the caption head, um, he pulled me into his office and straight up was just like, who are you? Like, <laughs> and I was like, uh, I'm just Taha from like Plymouth High School. You know, he's like, have you ever auditioned before? I was like, no. Um, and I guess. Wait, he, I'm auditioning? <laughs> right. This is an like, audition? Yeah, exactly. I was like, I don't, what, what, for what? And he's like, troopers. And I mean, not to sound naive, but I didn't really know what that was at the time because I had followed like the major ones on YouTube and I was like, uh, okay, that's cool. You know, and he uh, ended up offering me a contract right then. And I like, I actually was like, oh, no, I'm not going to do it. Like, cause he's just like, here's a contract. I was like, no, I don't think so. 
Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, and he he basically was like, "Why not?" And he explained that it was a drum corps and everything else. And I told him my parents were not going to be about it. So very clearly, he like flipped out his little flip phone, handed it to me, and was like, "Call your parents right now." And this is like 10 p.m. on a Friday night, and it's like not <laughs> that, that's you know like not something you do. And uh, but yeah, I ended up calling them. Um, they my dad immediately like hung up on me when I said drums. He was like, "Not about it." But afterward, when we finally, like, I got home, I talked to them about it. It was basically, like, I could do it as long as I could support myself. Like, if I could pay for it, if I could figure it out, and I don't let it affect school, then he let me do it. So that kind of started it all. Like, once I got the bug from that, like, I ended up, I went back to Troopers in 09, and then the dream was always to do Vanguard. Did that in 10, um, filled the hole at the Academy in 11, and then aged out at Coates in 12. So that's kind of the drumming career. The year you so, were at Vanguard was when Brian Mason was there, right? Correct. He yeah. wrote the book. Cool. Yeah, Evan so, and I know him from Moorhead. Yeah, he's the percussion studio, percussion ca- head. I was about to say caption head, but the percussion head for the unit, the percussive department at Moorhead where we went. But so when you went to the camp, did like you did they have a packet? Or did you not know it? Or were you just like, hey, let's play these exercises? Like, well, yeah, it, there wasn't a packet. It was like they he handed like a bunch of these like kind of sight reading materials. Um, it was a super interesting audition. A lot of it was focused on like approach and technique and then on independence, actually. It was like his grind that year where like there was this paper out of like a classical concert snare drum book that he wanted you to play while playing quarter notes on the other hand, things like that. The individual audition was actually on a Mylar drum. Um, oh my gosh. That's so, so yeah, random. He was... He was super weird guy but learned a lot from him but yeah i had no idea that that was an audition until he pulled me into the office that's hilarious that's extremely funny and very out of the norm yep. <laughs> especially today like everybody's like buying the packets like kids buy the packets that don't even go to the camps just so they get the beats right <laughs> right which is pretty funny uh how was uh wearing a tie all summer for academy oh. uh it it was interesting because not to sound mean, but no one knew how to tie a tie except for me. Um, <laughs> and like, they were real ties, like they were legitimate ties. So every time we had to get ready for a show, there was like a line of like five or six dudes in front of me that I had to tie their ties so that they could put them on. But uh, yeah, it was we we kind of messed around. That was the first year we changed uniforms at the academy, and we messed around with like the first shows. We would like go all out like in the shirt and the tie, and then it got really hot. So then we ended up doing like the shirt only, and then it got really hot in tour. So we just ended up going with the blacks and putting the shirts on later. But it was interesting. That that was a very fun summer. Like people always question like going from Vanguard to Academy, and there's obviously like clear differences organizationally, just from like a standpoint of where the organizations are at, but. I think as far as enjoyment goes, like that group, that percussion section was, they gelled so well. There was like zero egos. Everyone just got along. And I think we ended up, can't remember exactly, but I know that the drum line ended up placing like six places above the core or something like that, just because we were, nice. we we're all just down, you know, down for the cost, like drum and have fun. Um, and that was Academy and, in 11, right? Yeah, Academy okay. in 11. And so you got that spot based on murray right is that what you said he went right so brian stevens was at troopers and murray was at vanguard so i marched for both of them and both of them ended up going to the academy with glenn crosby and i guess glenn the legend yeah they told glenn about me and so like brian called me in february like tomorrow he calls like he i will say this about brian he's like a dad like he calls every one of his kids every year to try and get them to march for him um and i said (laughs) Yeah. I said no. And then uh, Matt Ramey also went there and he called me and I said no. And then Murray and Glenn called me in like May. And that's when I said yes. To them. So what was the hesitation? Did you have other stuff going on? Why you didn't want to do why you didn't want to march in 11? Um, yeah, it was a couple of things. Like it just seemed one going from Vanguard. Like obviously there was hesitation of like what it's going to be. Um, secondly, it was just the, the whole school thing, like actually going and getting your degree and, you know, doing MCAT classes and studying for exams and this and that, trying to do summer research opportunities. Like there was the potential of doing like a, you know, microbiology lab over the summer, things like that. Um, 
And then the closer I got to it, the more I realized it was like that the, the summer is my escape. Like I do that, you know, other stuff year round and it's something that's, that's important. But it was like, if I didn't do the drumming thing, I think I would go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Just reset, give you a refresh and recalibrate your brain, take your mind off of all the crazy stuff you just talked about. I, it, I, microbiology that stuff eludes me i read you had a neurobiology major right correct what it was that's pretty sick (laughs) sounds like something you and mike are on a different level with school than (laughs) me in that regard Um, but yeah man that's cool um so you how was it marching then i guess four straight summers on a tilt and then going to the flat right in 2012 yeah i mean Personally, I actually, I see the merits to both. Like, I understand why people do either one. Um, the tilt feels a little better for me because of, like, I think ergonomics and body. Um, but going to the flat, it, was, it wasn't as bad as people thought, except when apparently, like, the right hand, like, was slightly slicing. So I ended up having to, like, lift the drum up slightly higher than I would like to because I have a short torso but long arms. Um, so that's why, like, the tilt felt better for me. But the flat drum was – it was an adjustment that wasn't as major as people think it is. Um, but I do think people overdo the tilt. Like, I see some groups, like, even 09 Vanguard, like, their drums were, like, almost – Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, that was a um, super tilt. So I think, like – I think the tilt's very minimal, to be honest. I actually had a, a guy that went to Moorhead with Mike and I who marched that 09 Vanguard line. Um, mm. The Obviously, the whole connection between Mason and Vanguard at the time, Moorhead, Vanguard. Right. But he came back, and we played on a flat drum at that college band or whatever, and I was like, dude, right. what are your hands doing? Because their tilt was crazy severe. Yeah. We, yeah. Did a, we did a tilt this winter at Cap City. I taught there, and... I mean, it was like we would like 10, 11 degrees, like the at most. Right. Like it's pretty, right. <laughs> which that's yeah. the first time I ever taught on a tilt and ever played on a tilt either, which was kind of funny. But the same way you're talking, like the change in between going from tilt to flat wasn't, I, I didn't find it to be super, like I was right. like, all right, this feels pretty natural. I was like, I'm not really changing anything with what I'm doing mechanically. So exactly. I'm still exactly. playing drums. Like I can actually like, nerded out on this with with someone else just as far as like why we tilt and you know i think it's a big reason to have a why not just because like oh i did it when i was at vanguard you know i like tried to think through it and it's like i think from if you're starting like strictly ergonomics and strictly like how your body is like slight tilt like i think at monarch we tilt like nine degrees like i think we go between eight and ten and just super subtle enough where that neither hand and elbow has to be in a position that's not its natural neutral position. Yeah, so that's that's why I still am a proponent of the tilt. Yeah. You know? so, I mean, no, go ahead, it man. makes sense. I mean, yeah. like you're talking about just from a physiological standpoint, the way your hands are set up, the way your wrists. I mean, you're already turning your left hand over abnormally, and people fight the wrist turn all the time to right. get it to where you're striking the drum head at the correct bead angle. So it's like, well, why not just make it a little bit easier on ourselves? So it's easier to do stick tricks on a flat drum, though. I'll say that. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) But. So cool. I'm going to shepherd us along here to the next topic. Um, Speaking of Monarch, let's start there. So how how did somebody who never marched indoor, you never did, right? No, I did not. Never marched indoor end up being like a founding staff member of a very successful independent world indoor group like how did how did monarch come about like did you just get a phone call was it your idea did I mean, what because indoors uh, to my knowledge at least indoor is not really a big thing in texas i think it's growing right but monarch's right. been around for what like five years now four years correct five years so i always i mean it makes perfect sense that a highly competitive world group could come out of Texas because band is so big and just seems like a no brainer. Once you guys came out and I saw the first videos the first year and I was like, Oh, this is actually solid considering they're just starting. And it made perfect sense just because of the band environment of Texas. So how did, how did that all come about? And we'll just go from there. Yeah. Um, well actually, so I moved back to Houston, um, and in 2014, there was one of my friends 
Emily Whaley, she uh, hit me up and asked me, like, hey, you know, there's this independent group called Lone Star Independent out of Houston, and she was helping with that, and they needed help. Like, they needed a snare, a quad tech, a battery person, because um, there was currently, like, two people on their staff. Um, so I ended up helping out, and, you know, I thought I was just going to help with an audition. Um, ended up running the whole thing through the season as, like, battery and visual. Uh, <laughs> hey, they actually ended up, we went to Dayton, and I, I literally had no idea. Like, I never did indoor, never went to WGI. I, all I knew about was, like, videos and talking to you guys at, over the summer about what it is. Um, we won independent A class, so I didn't really know what that meant, but I know we, like, got a gold medal. I was like, hey, that's cool. Like, I like this indoor thing, you know? Um, Winning is fun. Yeah, and, uh, and then, unfortunately, like most Texas groups in 2015, the group folded, um, just wasn't able to you know sustain and i got a call from another friend um zach harston who was i guess monarch was becoming a thing like there was an idea it wasn't really formed and he asked me to come come like be part of the staff and so it was created by um a couple of people like there was rob sullins kyle Wynn, chris king like a couple of people in houston got together you know decided like like you said, Texas and Houston, we need like a group that is sustainable, that's an outlet for people, that's an educational resource. Um, and they they formed it. They formed the group, they got it up and running, and then they built a staff. And, um, you know, Eric Reidenauer was supposed to be the music caption head that year, and he, he actually interviewed me, he hired me on staff. Um, and I got there, and again, I think just because of a series of events, um, most of the people that were hired on staff were unable to do it. So it actually ended up being myself, um, Emily Whaley, and one more person again, where it just, when you fall into that position, um, and I had recruited most of the kids, like I was like, if I'm going to teach this thing, I'm going to recruit my own kids. So I reached out to all these people I knew about, like, you know, kind of what would be considered talent down in, in Texas and, uh, reached out to them, kind of told them about the thing. The first year was kind of easy because the dues were only $900. Um, so we, you know, <laughs> that's we, nice. Yeah, we were able to like market it that way. And when that happened, um, we, we had a five year plan. Like when, you know, all the staff bailed, they actually like the director pulled me in and kind of said like, Hey, like, you know, can you take over? Can you run the thing? And it's like, sure. And there was a five year plan of being a class for five years, kind of establishing a foundation, um, allowing the thing to grow naturally and, and kind of organically and then going to open class and then when we're ready making the plunge to world um the group actually got bumped the first year before the first show um so i guess that was a, a doing of it was wgi kind of reached out and said like we we posted like a like you said like a video of like our audition camp or something like that and, and things like that and they're like hey like just to be smart you should probably not go a class and um is this 15 it was, yeah, 2015. And uh, so we went open class that year. And then the next year, 16, we were flagged to get bumped to Worlds um, mid-season. Um, and then so 17, it was basically like the director had a meeting with me and was like, look, like, I know you don't think we're ready, but we're going to need to jump to Worlds. Because if we want the designers to design a world-class show, if we want to keep pushing and, you know, pushing the boundaries of what we can do as a group, then we're going to need to go well. So we took the plunge in that summer and it's ended up being, being good so far, you know, like kind of, I'll say, where'd you all finish this year? Uh, we were seventh this year. I mean, what's your, your fourth or fifth year, fifth year, uh, fifth year total third, third year in world class. So considering the initial plan when the group started was to be a class for five years. And that after, after those five years, you all got seventh in world. Uh, I think you guys are doing something right. Um, it's It's been a fun. So I think the thing that has allowed us to get to that spot, um, obviously the, the the staff around us is, is great. Like I, I'm humbled every single day that literally we're, we're, you know, working with people that run their own groups. They're, they're all part of like drum corps staff. They're doing great things. Um, but I think the biggest thing is we – the admin has been incredible. They they kind of sit me down every year and we just we literally talk about what we need to improve. Like not looking at any other groups, not looking at 
the activity, just what we as an organization, what Monarch needs to improve to make us work better and operate more efficiently. So I think it's it's good that we're constantly like putting the microscope on ourselves as an organization. And we've decided to split the admin and the instructional side of things, which in my opinion is extremely beneficial because the teachers get to teach and the admin get to do all the logistics and business and not having to delve, you know, or, or put your hand in both, both of those things allows everyone to focus on what they're like there to do. You know? Yeah, for sure. The setup that you're describing is the most efficient way to optimize uh, everybody's output and what they're able to bring to the table. Just, there were several times this winter when I was teaching, it was my first year at CAP teaching the snare drums. And I would be like, hey, do we need to like tell the members like this, this, and this? And they'd be like, no, nah, admin takes care of that. And I'm like, great. Like that just right. takes, kids aren't coming to me asking like, hey, where are the showers this weekend? I'm like, no, they, somebody else is figuring that out. I don't have to worry about it. Um, and I think that sort of mindset of self-assessing is the way people get better and grow each year. You're worried about being great and the results or doing well are a product of trying to just make yourself better other than just trying to chase a placement, so to speak. So I'm down with that. Yeah, definitely. Cool. And then uh, you guys have a lot of exercises. I watched that video. (laughs) Was it the flow marching videos? Man, there's a lot to learn. That's one thing I do not envy with with this generation's kids. Everything's cool and hip, but it's like, man, that's a lot of notes to learn. (laughs) yeah yeah the the exercise thing it it was interesting it i mean the first thing i ever saw like i said was vanguard 04 um and that was like i remember clearly like just being in that lot was like that was life-changing right and so what i tried to do is influence like the the backgrounds are for marine mike biggest influences obviously and the, the challenge that I always have is I try and take the most basic exercises. Like literally, if you actually just take the snare part for any of those exercises, they are like the Sanford shuffle and they are paradiddle breakdowns. You know, they're, they're nothing difficult. And then I try and make them sound like they're groovy and difficult. But if you just play them, they're literally breakdowns. They're primers that you would do with high school kids. You know? that's yeah, cool that's funny because that's... Cause... No, go ahead. That van, well, that's Vanguard lines. Obviously, four played like basic strokes, like slitzing giggles, cheesy poofs, flamus. Like right. they're just like going hard, like right. a wheelchair. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. Great. It's cool to hear you say you like to keep it simple because that's kind of the teaching philosophy with all the high school kids that I've taught throughout the years. Is mm-hmm. it's just keep it stupid simple. Like you, right. you have to understand how to properly play the basic skill sets. Because everything you play is just a combination of those skill sets at the end of the day, so it's it's cool it's cool to hear that uh, that's just like a more widely used approach. And I'm not crazy. <laughs> right. Another yeah. another throwback. I used to have that 04 Vanguard DVD, yeah. the lot tunes or whatever, and I would like throw it on and try to play all the exercises with them. I, I just now remember right. that. That's funny. Yeah. No. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, so, in, in front high school thing it's like I, I use the same exercises it's just the base part's probably the only thing that's different like monarch's baseline obviously was more skilled than your average um high school line so but the snare and quad parts they're they're pretty simple that probably yeah. helps with it's... um translating your kids if they happen to be good enough to go to monarch they're already good, uh, being played they're already going to have been playing those exercises for quite a while so right and the approach right. is con- the continuity of approach. It's just all a system that feeds itself. It's pretty cool. Well, speaking of that, this will kind of segue. And Mike, we can you can take us down a different road if you want. But so you're talking about the same things that you would give to your high school kids. Very similar. You actually work with or have worked with quite a few high schools in the area, right? Was it Claremont, Sci Fair, Sci Falls, etc. List right. or something like that? Do you like go between all these schools or like? Is that just schools that you have worked with over the past? Yeah. Um, I actually, so at first, like when I first started teaching, it was, I, I guess there's like a, as weird as it sounds, there's a scarcity for drum techs down in this area. Um, and back then it was just whoever asked, I would be like, yeah, sure. I can come help out. Like, yeah, sure. And it would just be like, 
you know, I never thought I was going to teach, but it was like a day thing here, a day thing there. Um, at one point I was doing like one school a day. So each day of the week was a different school. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, but my biggest reason for that was because like, and we can dive into this later, but it was trying to spread the footprint a little bit more. Like you said, trying to build a culture down in Texas where I didn't really feel like it was down here. Um, when we talk about the Texas band scene, like I'll dive more into why, but um, now, currently, I'm mainly with with two groups, Cypher and Clear Brook. Those are the two that kind of it, it's a year round investment because they do indoor and outdoor. So those are the okay. groups that that I work with. Yeah, I think the Texas band scene from the outside perspective, from us up here in Kentucky, like we see the great BOA bands, like these mm -hmm. f super phenomenal fall programs and that kind of seems to be at least from the marching perspective like outside of concert band obviously those they're taking care of business there or they wouldn't be as good as successful outside mm -hmm. but like they put their eggs in the marching basket when it comes to like marching percussion versus like wgi indoor guard or percussion or winds or anything like that but right is that fair assessment i guess uh, yeah in in a way so i think the the marching bands obviously are like extremely skilled down in Texas. And it's, I think the competition drives the demand for it to be better. Um, and each group is like incredible. But I think from a percussion standpoint, there, there's this thing called UIL down here. It's like the governing body of, of high school, basically. It's uh, like NCAA. It's just a giant overarching um, like entity. And so UIA. Go ahead. Because UIL, from my understanding, does sports and like extracurricular, like so sports, cheerleading, band, like you name yep. it, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's it's literally the the thing, and it has its own like rule books. It has its own like literally, it's NCAA basically. If you talk about it, and that in itself, you know, and this is opinion, and I feel like I might um, ruffle some feathers, but in itself, doesn't value percussion as much. Um, like it's there, there was a stigma and it's changing slowly, but surely, but there's a stigma that if the percussion was heard in the marching show, they were too loud. That's just the stock Texas thing. Um, when I was growing up, we literally were backside line, four steps in front, the whole show. And, you know, back then it was like, you can't play above mezzo piano. Cause if you're, if you even are covering the winds, like the slightest bit, then you're too loud. And the reason for that was the judging system in UIL is extremely arbitrary. There's just, there's three judges or four judges that kind of just judge the show. Like they don't, there's no specific like captions or anything like that. It's like, and you give them ordinals. So they, they score you by points and then they put ordinals out for these groups. And the lowest, it's like a golf, like the lowest number is the first place, et cetera, et cetera. But there are groups whose ordinals literally, like you can look on the recaps, like, there's a group that got like first, third, second, 15th, 34th, because one judge just decided they were 34th place, you know? Wow. And, and there's no like rhyme or reason. There's nothing behind it. So what ended up happening is the percussion side of it got really devalued. Um, but the wins are obviously like incredible because that's what they focus on. Um, now with like the, the extreme like certainness of BOA, um, it's changing a little bit because more and more people are putting value into every caption, like color guard, percussion, wins, like visual, everything has value to it. So I feel like it's changing now for the better. Um, my biggest thing was just the fairness aspect, like give your percussionist the same value. Like I was told in high school that marching band doesn't matter. You need to focus on your concert playing because that's what's going to get you further in life. Um, and so the, the concert side I think is great and it's absolutely necessary, but it got to a point where they were they were pushing that so hard that they forced marching bands to not be important. And they, they didn't want you to do drum corps. They didn't want you to do indoor because they wanted you to do concert bands so much because um, it's a class period. You know? that's, yeah. that's wild to hear about because, like Evan said, our view in Kentucky of Texas is like it's one of the band meccas like one of the marching band meccas, like all facets, guard, percussion. Now, I've admittedly not seen my, – my exposure to different Texas bands is pretty low, mm -hmm. um, but I'd always just had this image in my head that Texas band was just 
grade A quality across the board in every aspect. And I will say it makes perfect sense now to hear that you were forced to play so quiet in high school. That's that's how you're that's how your quality at the low end. That's why it's so good. Dude, I don't know if I've ever told you, Evan, Taha's taps, like he could play lower than anyone I've ever met on a marching snare drum and have it sound really good. I don't. That's awesome. I don't know. It makes sense now. It makes perfect sense. That, I mean, I guess that makes sense too. Like my saying, like from our perspective, like what we see from miles and miles away, like, like the groups that we're exposed to, are the groups that are like nationally recognized, like the Ronald Reagans, like this right. and that, all the Claudia Taylor Johnsons, like that. Like, so, and Texas is obviously a huge state, and I could probably tell you only 10 bands there. So, right. those 10 bands, I probably know for a reason. Um, yeah. But we had the same issue in Kentucky in regards to judging, and sometimes the people that are on the panel want to feel the percussion section, but not actually hear it type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gets devalued in the fact that they're not necessarily well versed in what they're judging from a percussive standpoint. Cause they have a more wind focus or brass focus or visual focus, that sort of thing. And I think that the marching thing, my perspective on that has shifted so much because I look at it as an experience for kids to give them a positive experience. And I was talking with a friend of mine, who's a, a percussion instructor here. He teaches and he was like, yeah, man, my, pedagogy changed so much over the years just because i stopped trying to give every person the well-rounded percussion experience he's like i still give them that opportunity to have that if they want to he's like but and he's had a successful program he's like but over the 12 years i've been teaching i've had three kids go on to major in music which i gave them the tools that they need in order to be successful at that and i give them the knowledge but if joe just really likes to play snare drum and and kevin just really likes to play marimba like i'm just gonna let them do that because that's what that's what they're getting enjoyment out of and they're probably not gonna make a career out of it right and that so this exact conversation i had with people not only in texas but the the staff from bk because they're from socal and so for us like you start in percussion in middle school but when when i was taught i was taught percussion from a trumpet player like it wasn't a percussionist because in middle school you have two band directors, one teaches woodwinds and the other teaches brass and percussion. And then when I got to high school, my percussion director was also an assistant band director. They weren't, they were a percussion specialist, but their focus was the band. So there were times in concert bands and, and I don't mean to hate on concert band, but I know that my experience was that I sat in the back of the band hall. We played a 30 minute repertoire and I had one triangle note out of those 30 minutes lots you know, of tacit so, time mm-hmm. yeah so for us we, we were just sitting there so it it made my experience feel as if concert band wasn't as important now i'm sure if i was the only percussionist in that band and i was playing all the parts i would feel more valued right but that's the thing is we had eight or nine percussionists in one band and each person had to divvy up the parts where it wasn't that nowadays there's it's changing in the sense that there's a new paraprofessional position that opens up and that person is just a percussion specialist that they are allowed to go to the middle schools, they start the beginners, they also, during the high school classes, they get to take the percussionist out of that class period and do percussion ensemble. So I feel like if that was my experience, I'd have a really different perspective or viewpoint of, of the concert scene, because that's that's all I did, was all I did was a concert band thing until I got to drum corps. You know? um, and so now it's it's more and more people are taking that approach of, of like you said, making it, that statistically speaking, just in general, I don't think many high school kids, wins or percussion, do music as a major. You know, most of the kids in band are the ones that are like, they're going to be doctors and engineers and lawyers. And like, they're the smart kids in school. You know, like they're the ones who are like really pushing the SAT scores and boundaries. And, and there's statistics to represent that, that how band kids are, are just scoring higher on these standardized tests. So like you said, my biggest thing, just high school, Monarchs, Blue Knights, anywhere, is that the member experience and giving them valuable life lessons is way more important than trying to make them a cog in the system of, like, you need to be the next music ed major. Because I think some of the most influential teachers that I've ever had are not music ed majors. Mm-hmm. But they've, they've changed my life. Yeah. Agreed. Like, the, my people that taught me private lessons, the people who, like, taught me, like, my percussion section leaders from marching band uh, or instructors who I'm now friends with, like, those people impacted my life in a positive way. And, like, that's what it's about. Because there's 
X number of marching band director jobs out there. And we're all just a bunch of band nerds. Like I knew I loved band, but I was like, I'm not about like my God bless the people that are teach in bands. Like my wife's a band director and I walk in, I'm like, I could never do this ever um, in a classroom setting. But those kids still want to do the activities. So Right. Got to give, got to give them what they want. <laughs> right, and I, I will say, my high school experience was kind of exactly what Taha just described in Kentucky here in Louisville. I just wanted to play snare drum. I knew I didn't start band till I was fourteen. Not freshman in high school, there was no band at my private grade school that I went to, and right. I just really fell in love with marching snare drum. I didn't want to play xylophone. I didn't want to play anything else. I considered it my my competitive sport basically, and right. but because there was this culture of pushing, just being a well-rounded percussionist and being exposed to X, Y, and Z, so you can go on. It's like, look, I don't need to know how to do this. I right. just like I wouldn't have been in band class if it was an option to not take band <laughs> class and be in marching band after school. Yeah, like I would have taken cool. other classes. And it, it and always <laughs> infuriated me that I just couldn't do what I wanted to do. Now, it wasn't, I never quite had the experience where I had one triangle note in an entire piece. I had some pretty shallow parts throughout <laughs> my high school years, but typically, like, because I was pretty good at snare drum, I had hands and could play rhythm. So they had me play some marimba parts and xylo parts for various things that I was able to do, but I didn't enjoy it. I didn't want to be there. I mean, I I butted yeah. heads. Now it turns out my band director knew a little bit more than I like to think that he did when I was in high school. You know, you think you know it all when you're 16, but at the end of the day, I just at the end of the day, I just like didn't want to be there. And I would have had a lot more fun and maybe been better at snare drum younger if I'd been allowed to just do that and not have to spend time on other stuff that I knew I was yeah. never going to use. And I feel like in that regard, it's like I, I was a marimba player. I played marimba literally from ninth grade through 12th grade. Like that's what I did. But I think the bigger thing, like you stated, is that if some kid finds something fun, like why would you, it, it seemed almost as if they were going to take that one away because you weren't doing the other standardized thing they were telling you to do. Right. Yeah, and exactly. It, and I, it, it felt like if you're going to say well-rounded percussionist, I, I'm really sensitive to that because then we're not making well-rounded percussionists. Like we're making people who can play marimba, timpani, and concert snare. That's not well-rounded. Like why not get a drum set clinician and teach all the kids how to play drum set? Why not yeah. get a hand drum person and teach them how to play tabla? You know, why not bring in a Latin percussionist and teach them that? Like we're only teaching kids three instruments and calling them well-rounded. And I don't feel like that's accurate. You know? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, so, there's so many facets. Like how could you even like? start to begin to say like oh these kids are well-rounded it's like nah like they just right. know they know more things maybe than you than one thing but yeah, yeah. i feel that so this next thing i want to jump onto here is kind of changing the subject a little bit but just to steer us in a different direction um we've discussed on here quad drumming specifically before and we actually had somebody reach out and evan his name escapes me he marched united percussion as a quad player um i can't remember uh, his name jimmy i'm gonna butcher the last name tui tuli yeah. sorry jimmy. Uh, yeah sorry jimmy if we butchered your last name but how's the quad drumming right. in texas because there's this seems to be this recurring theme of is quad drumming and you might be able to speak to this from your experience at Monarch and Blue Knights. Like, are you guys having trouble finding quality quad drummers? Because it seems to be that every season, all these like indoor groups are like, hey, we still have quad spots open. Hey, we need quad players. Like, are just kids not playing it because of the weight or right. they just don't think it's important? Or, I mean, is that a thing you experience in your teaching? Or, yeah. Um, I think it's, it's kind of like going back to that thing we were talking about as far as scarcity creates its own demand and in what we were saying that at least in texas like before when i was growing up the only things that mattered were snare drum and marimba like that was it right so everyone would quote stack their lines with the good players playing snare drum and marimba um now i think it's definitely i feel like the activity goes through waves like snare drumming was a thing to do before and then it became like quad drumming and then now it's like bass drumming like the things bass drummers are doing are just ridiculous oh, right dude. That yes. whole topic on its own. Baselines right. have gotten ridiculous. 
Right. And and I feel like it comes in waves. The biggest reason I see that there's less quad drummers is because there's less people who teach quad drums, right? Like most yep. people who come back to teach. And again, it's it's because of the amount. Like there's less people teaching than there are groups to be taught, mm-hmm. right? And, and in that regard, because again, most, and we can't blame the kids, but most of the kids who do drum corps, who do these things, they end up going to college and getting jobs. Like there aren't techs, right? Whereas in California, there's literally a snare tech, quad tech, bass tech, and caption head for each school. So when you have that resource available, I feel like you're obviously going to get better. In Texas, like I know for me, at least the high schools I teach at, like I'm the only battery person. Like we can't hire, like it's either you hire a battery person, that's it, or you hire a front person, that's it. There's no such thing as like, oh, we're going to hire a bunch of these techs, you know, or if you do, you're paying them not what they should be paid, right? Like it's barely anything. So you can't afford to have someone full time. So do I feel like there's less talented quad drummers? No, I just feel like there's less resources for quad drummers to be good because no one teaches them. Like quad drumming is so specific as far as you need to know different motions and mechanics and how it's, what the zones are and there's patterns, right? And, and those types of things, like when these kids go to drum quad auditions, they, they don't succeed because say like we throw at them like, hey, put this on the 7-8 pattern. They have no idea what we're talking about because they've never been told. All they know is like, they play the music that's given to them that's taught by a snare drummer. So I, I think for us, what we experienced at Monarch was in 2017, it was our first year going world-class, we had a brand new quad line. Like all four of those kids were brand new. And we've actually retained three of them since 17. So 17, 18, 19, three of them have been marching for me. And three of them, those three actually are actually at Blue Nights this summer as well. So Wait, I, I think it's- So say that again? So there, there's three kids, Nick, Shane, and Austin, who marched in 2017 at Monarch, and they marched 2018 at Monarch as well, 2019 at Monarch. Um, there are three of those, so Austin, Shane, and Nick are all at Blue Knights this summer marching quads. Nice. So Blue Knights quad line is about to be nasty. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty good. You heard it here first, kids. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it. Yeah, that's cool. Um, did you guys do your Vig vids yet at BK? We're actually Promark now. Uh, oh, are you? Oh, yeah. Did, Mike, did Mike switch to Promark? No, 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 no. Mike's still Vic, and he has no say. Kevin Shaw is actually Promark. Um, okay. And so the organization went Promark because the the Dario connection. So we're Evans and Promark. Okay. Yeah. Were so they what, Rima, were they Remo last year? Yeah, we were Remo. So this uh, will actually allow us to segue perfectly in what we want to end on and talk about the Blue Knights. I know. Have you guys revealed your show yet? Uh, they have not. Yeah, I didn't think so. So everything's a big secret these days. I know. So if right. you guys are Promark, you're you're obviously not using Mike's snare sticks, right? And when I say Mike, I mean Mike Jackson. For those that Correct. aren't aware. Correct. Who are you? Are what you sticks the are you fire guys using? Yeah. So I think right now we were experimenting between either the Tim Fairbanks, the fire green ones, or the Jeff Ostomars. What do you think of Tim's sticks? His new ones, those fire greens. Um, they're, they're good. Obviously I think with sticks, it's, again, this is going to get really nerdy, but I feel like it's each style has its own stick that plays well to it, uh, which is why people come out with different sticks, right? Like if you're going to put a certain style book, that person's stick feels great. Um, obviously the like style I teach, the style I play, there's certain sticks that feel really good, um, for that approach. Um, the Fairbank sticks, I think just taking that aside, like personal bias aside and talking strictly like 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 facts i think they're dense and they're heavy which is good you know um they have a kind of medium shortish taper so the rebound's not as quick but there's a lot of like low end control which you can play a lot like faster diddles with it uh-huh. um the bead is more like round and oval so the, the footprint gives a much like denser sound when it hits the drum you know okay they're beefy yeah i was at, like for me personal yeah. preference I don't yeah. like super beefy sticks, so I'm not a huge fan. Like the high school I teach at in Louisville, we used them last season, and we're probably not going to use them this season. Um, right. They're just right. a little too beefy, I feel like, for one, for high school kids to succeed mm-hmm. well with. I think they're a little too, I guess, chop demanding, if that makes sense. Right. Like, obviously, they're going to rebound well, but you need chops to manipulate them and understand how to use rebound to your to your advantage and all that stuff. But... Um, for yep. me, like I, you can ask Evan, I like 
light sticks. I, but I have heavy hands. So, like, I know at Blue Coats in 2012, you know, I played loud a lot. Right. And it's just, I mean, I started my drum corps career at the Blue Stars, and we, we beat the living shit, pardon my French, out of the drums <laughs> like it owed us money. Like, we just, now we, we had relaxed hands, but there was the weight of, like, our entire arms behind it. So I just mm-hmm. learned to do that. And I have big hands yeah. also. So I, right. I I don't know if I ever told you this, but you know how in 12 they gave us three pairs of sticks finals week, one for quarters yeah. night, one for semis, and one for finals? Yeah. Um, so my quarter sticks, I still have them and use them to this day, are super light. They're very high pitched, so they, they, they feel great, but they're light. And so I used them on quarters night. Everything was fine. And then my semis and finals pairs were like Lincoln Logs. Like mm-hmm. they were, they were high pitched, but they were just really, really heavy. And so right. I think finals day, I grabbed the sticks that were supposed to be my final sticks. And there was a rep, like we were in snare subs and Mike and Roger were in front of us and Shriver and we played one of the charts and Mike came over to our side of the snare. Line. I was like, something sounded weird down here. Did you guys hear it? And I was using the heavy <laughs> sticks. It was me. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I like put, I instantly turned around threw my backpack and grabbed my quarter sticks next rep. He came back over and he goes, all right, cool. That was fine. Great. Good job. Right. <laughs> I mean, That's I just, funny. I have to use them. I don't know if it's in, it's probably in my head a little bit. You know, I get, I got, I got inside my own head sometimes, but mm. it was all right by the end of the season. Um, yeah. Are you, are you guys still rocking the Mapex out there? Yeah. Yeah. We're doing what the do you Mapex think of those things? Quite. What do you think of those drums? Uh, they're, they're interesting. Like I've, I've actually been, I guess, fortunate you could say to use so many different brands, like whether marching, teaching, um, the Mapex drums themselves, they're, they're interesting in the sense that like, obviously they're, they're beautiful drums and they have white hardware that they customize for us. And the print is great. Um, but as far as the actual sound, like, I think they, they have kind of different layers of wood. Um, obviously I'm a Pearl artist, so I prefer Pearl. Um, but just the sound itself to me, you have to adjust your tuning to make it sound the way you want to. And I feel like that's the case for most drum companies. Like with the Mapex snare drum specifically, they, if you tune them the exact same as another company, they're going to sound slightly more hollow and slightly more like open. So I have to change the way I tune and tune the guts differently, use tape different spots um, to make them sound how I want them to sound. You know, But I, I feel like a lot of the drum stuff comes down to who's tuning and how you're tuning. Um, that way you can make the drums sound how you want them to. For sure. Cool. You have to mix it up again this year too with the new bottoms. Rocking those right. MX-5s, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. I love MX-5s that head. Great. It's Such a, tank. a good bottom head. Uh-huh. Yeah. So let's yeah. kind of talk about Blue Knights a little more. How did how did that gig come about? Did, did Mike just reach out to you because he needed a snare tech? Did you reach out to him? How did it kind of start? Yeah. Um, so in 2014 when Mike took the gig at Blue Knights, um, Mike is he's just on a different level when it comes to like philosophy and intellect. And he, uh, he wanted to save the core money. So for all these satellite camps, he would actually reach out to people who were local to that area to try and see if he could save flights for the staff. Cause if you're a satellite camp is like five hour day, if you're going to fly someone from Southern California to Texas with the time difference and then flying back like that, that didn't make sense to him fiscally. So what he ended up doing was he called me and said, Hey, are you in Texas? And I was like, yeah, I'm still in Texas. And he's like, can you do this camp with me? And so in 2014, 2015, I did the camps for him in Texas and we, you know, we kept in touch and we were talking about other things. And, uh, those two years of blue nights, I actually, those were my favorite shows on the field, like the one second show and the because show, and that's just what I gravitate towards more. And uh, in 2015, on finals day, like, you know, everyone hangs out afterward. I saw Mike and Veronica and all them, and I was talking to them. And it kind of came up about, like, what my plans were for the future, like, because I was teaching spirit at the time. And, you know, I think for me, it wasn't like I was just trying to get out of spirit, but it was the opportunity of Blue Nights was the opportunity. Like, that was and working with Mike like right. more yeah. exactly and that was the only place that i would want to work so it wasn't like oh i'm just trying to jump ship it was that the opportunity that i wanted came up and you know we talked about it and he was like absolutely like let's let's do this thing and um so when i was brought on board there was still you know i was the third technical snare tech um but you know life happened with the other two snare techs and i actually ended up doing the most time that summer 
Um, so since then I've kind of like been there since 16 doing the gig and it's, it's been great. Like I would never leave that organization. It, to me, it just seems like being able to work with Mike and listen to the information. Cause I've, I've listened to some interviews that he's done and I think the podcast he's done before, just listening to him articulate words, like inform sentences from the thoughts in his brain. I'm just like, man, this dude's brain works in a whole different way than mine, which is really cool. And then a lot of that obviously translates into the music and the emotion that he gets out of his writing and the dynamic contrast that just he throws on a snare drum. I'm just like, man, this is crazy. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. It was definitely right. for me. It was one of the highlights of my marching career. I was taught. I, I was. I've been lucky enough to have been taught by a lot of different people across the activity. And Mike was. It was awesome to march for him for a summer. And I couldn't imagine what it'd be like to teach for him. Just how much more knowledge you would get to absorb from him about everything. Absolutely. He. I think the biggest thing with him is he's he's so passionate about you know taking care of of things the right way you know um and he like more so than anything else he wants the members to feel good and it's it's never about him like i know people say that all the time but he's one of the most selfless humans i've ever met like he is very much just about the art and what we're trying to say and he he takes he brings no, like I, I feel like he could because he's such a big name in the activity, but he has no ego. Like when he's talking to you, he's talking to you as like a friend, as a peer. It's never like I'm your boss. You know, when he's talking to the kids, it's it's like a dad. You know, he's not trying to berate them. There's there's literal times where the kids like they're, they're making mistakes, right? And, and we're quote dirting out things. And instead of yelling, instead of raising his voice, his like initial reaction is to give the kids a break. And the way he described it to us one time was if George Clooney comes in to act a scene and he's not getting it, he's just not, he's missing the mark. Would they make him do push-ups and would they make him run a lot? Or would you just cut scene, take a five minute water break and try again? You know? And, and so he, he treats it very much as a mental professional, you know, activity as opposed to just like, this is how we do it. And this is what we're going to do. It's very much, everything has a reason why. Like, if you're going to do something, there has to be a why behind it. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense, too, just because at that level, talking about DCI world-class, WGI world-class, typically the members have the ability to play things the way that they need to play them. Of course, like, you still got to build chops, like, figure out the technical aspects that you're going to need to perform these. That's always going to be there, chop out, I get it. But at some point you're going to reach a point where I know you can do this. There's, we're just not doing it. Mm -hmm. So we, we could rep this 500 more times and get the same result. Um, I've heard people talk about Macintosh in that kind of same light. Like, Hey, let's just like, just go sit on a tree for a minute and like, we'll come back. Like, like it's more of a mental game than it is a physical. Right. And my experience, and I'm sure a lot of people's experience with drum corps is that it was definitely mentally more challenging than it ever was physically. And it's still physically hard, but you're just going and going and going and getting beat down. It's like, all right, I just need to relax. So I mean, that's, right. that goes to the whole thing that's present in professional sports, just to mm -hmm. compare it to a different, a different environment of there's a lot of athletes out there that can, are physically good enough to play at a professional level. But at the end of the day, it's the mental game that separates them from people below them. Can they show up and do it every single time? Can that kicker um, hit that 40-yard field goal nine out of ten times versus the guy that can hit it but can only hit it half the time? Or, or when the pressure's on. Exactly. Right. When you get when you get to the top right. drum cores and the top like drum lines in the summer, and the same thing goes for indoor, like all those groups are phenomenal. They they have mm -hmm. all played perfect reps of their book at some point, or near as perfect as possible. And it's the ones that have the mental chops and have been mentally, I don't want to say taken care of, but it's part of the staff's job is towards the end of the season, I think. And I've, this is coming from someone that's never taught drum corps, so correct me if I'm wrong. It comes down to managing your members' mentality. and Because like, you've done it enough. You know the parts. You know the drill. Your body can physically do it. 
It's about making sure your mental, your member's mental state is in the right place to successfully do that when it's time to do it. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, I think literally, I honestly believe every single group out there is incredible. Um, and I think the difference being that every, everyone has different things that are important to them and different priorities. So I know like for us, it's, it's never about the scores. Like we, Mike has never talked about scores, replacements, or we're not trying to get this position. It's, it's never about that. And, and that's, that's why I stay to work there. Cause I mean, just anyone will tell you working drum corps is not financially responsible. You know, it's not a decision that you should be making, <laughs> but it's, it's something that when, like when we think about what's important to us, it's important to us to, to at least as a staff member of Mike's to make his vision come to life and what he has to say. He always describes to us about how his priority is not what's going to be clean or how to do that. His priority is that he, he wants to convey motion, like an emotion, and he wants to convey, it's almost like a language. He's like, if you're listening to someone talk French and you don't know how to speak French, you can at least understand what they're saying by the dialect and the inflections and the tone. And he's like, if I can make my writing feel like that, like if he wants to portray water, like what would water sound like? You know, if he wants to portray this, like what would that sound like? And he, he has such a different process when it comes to that. And then, like you said, for us as staff members, we're the technicians. Like he, he's like the, the blueprints and we go in and interpret what he says and try and make that come to life. And at least on Blue Nights, like the caption head, Veronica Wicks, she is, I've never met someone who's that good at what they do while managing everything. Like she, she's the perfect person to run Mike's group because she, she has a master's in social work. So she totally understands how to handle and manage people. And she's able to delegate that, keep the members, you know, in mind as far as what they can and can't do physically. And she is also the staff coordinator of Blue Nights. So she's able to like structure the schedules that way, you know, give the kids more breaks. We're able to understand what the kids need because honestly, like it's the activity is so crazy now with how expensive it is. It's, it's just a shame that these kids are having to pay this much time you know, and money to not have an experience that they enjoy. You know, so that I think as far as Blue Nights goes, like the whole staff, like what Mike and Kevin have, you know, permeated down to all of us from through Veronica and the rest of the staff. It's we all agree, like what's important to us. Obviously, we're trying to be clean. Everyone's trying to be clean. I don't think any group goes out there and is like, hey, today we want to suck and dirt out this role. Right. It's, like, fun, to, it's fun to be clean and good. Right. Yeah, of course. Exactly. Of course. You know, but I think when it comes to like what our priority is, like he's not. We're, we're never going to demean a kid or, or yell at a kid if they're playing poorly because we know that's not their intent, right? Like the intention shapes their experience. It's like, say it all the time, like someone could look at a house and like an architect and see like a structure, a building and all the, the logistics that went into building the house. But a thief could look at that house and just see the exits, the windows, you know, exit routes. So it's like, you're looking at the same house, but you're seeing it totally different. So I feel like that's kind of the community nowadays, like everyone on YouTube and this and that, you know, you're, you're looking at certain things and if, if you don't have the right intention when you're looking at it, you're like, oh, that book's easy or these people suck or they're not doing it just because it's not the way you would do it, right? And I think Mike and the Blue Knight staff doesn't care about that. They're just, they're there to do their thing because we're doing it for the people who want that to be their thing, right? We're not doing it for, quote, the haters. It's just for the people who want that, you know? Oh, dude, that's, we could talk about that for hours, but social media, it's almost become the cool thing to like be the first person that like, just sucks. Like, everybody's right. like, dude, like, what are you talking about? Like, no, it doesn't. Like, but there's always going to be those people out there just like tear stuff down and they just want to troll and that's what they do. But at the end of the day, like you said, the perspective that you have on it is are you trying to look at this with the mindset of appreciating it? Or are you just trying to look at it to mm -hmm. be a grumpy old person or the grumpy old man, sort of speak? Um, so sort of, so to say, I guess, but right. in any, any sort of art is going to get that on both sides, but I would just hope that most people appreciate it. I think that at least one thing we try to do on the podcast 
is obviously Mike and I do critique people, um, right. but it's with a level and I've had some people message me. It's like with a level of always the intent, like everybody's working hard. I, right. I get that, yeah. but like, we're, we're not, so. we're not demeaning. <laughs> Anytime we critique anyone throughout the DCI season or WGI season, we're not critiquing the effort or the intent or cause everyone's working hard. What we're doing is we're taking more of a – it's like thinking of sports analysts on ESPN that are critiquing these basketball teams or these soccer teams and making predictions about who's going to win and lose. Like we're trying to take a little bit of that kind of approach when we do the critique stuff. So, yeah, we're going to say like if we watch – like we'll do like – I think we try to do the San Antonio Regional and then finals Mm -hmm. are the last two episodes of the season. And we'll mm-hmm. talk about, do we agree with the judge scores? What did we like? Didn't we like? Um, right. Uh, like, for example, we thought the cadets in, what was the, the church show two years ago? I think it was 17, I believe. Yeah, like we thought the cadets got dogged all summer for no reason. Mm-hmm. Like we, yeah. we, did, we vehemently like disagreed with them getting seventh or eighth every night. Like it blew our minds and we didn't understand how it was happening. But right. that doesn't mean we said the groups they should have beat we're bad, I mean, but also oh. at the same time, we do call a spade a spade. And if, like, if if some group doesn't play well at the San Antonio Regional, we're gonna say, yeah, that group just didn't have a good run. Like yeah. a lot of roles were yeah. fuzzy. Like something was. People up. have off nights. Yeah, it Steph Curry, LeBron I mean, James, right? The Cavaliers might have an off night. Like who knows? Like, like yeah. I know Evan probably had bad days. You probably had bad days. <laughs> I know I had bad days on tour where you weren't playing well or your head was weird or whatever. And so. Mm-hmm. I think there is a place for a level of objective critique, but from a point of view that is not derogatory or demeaning to what anyone is doing. It's more of just right. analyzing the placements from a competitive standpoint and give us more to talk about, you know? Yeah. And, and like you said, like, I think what you guys are doing is great on this, this podcast because you're utilizing it as a resource of like what we would do normally as if we're hanging out, right? Yeah. Like if we're just sitting on a couch talking and, and I feel like that's, you can't, ever tell people not to do that right like literally like on the bus we'll we'll talk about like same things um like you said it's more of a point of like i don't think i think everyone who's marched in the activity uh, i tend to believe everyone is trying to do good i'm at least going to hope that you know Um, but everyone who marched in the activity is understands that like i don't ever see it that way it was funny because we Mike and I had this conversation on a bus ride, actually. Like, people think drum corps staff buses get crazy. It's like, not for us. We just, we literally sit and talk about, like, philosophy. Um, We talked about, like, YouTube comments and just how social media, and like you said, it can be a totally different, like, podcast. Like, we just probably spend hours on it. But how that, it's usually not the people who are participating in it that tend to comment on it. You know, it's it's a crazy world in itself because you're able to hide behind the anonymity of of your screen right like the whole black mirror thing like you're literally yes and you don't have to face it you know like those people i'm sure wouldn't say that stuff if they were standing in front of whoever they're talking about you know it's it's kind of funny and crown recently posted their vic first like learn the licks or whatever and like the first Mm -hmm. comment by this dude um it's like oh this isn't that good and i was like who is this guy and i clicked on him and not that i am popular in this activity like i don't have a signature stick or this or that or blah 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 but it is a small network of people but i click on this dude zero mutual friends i'm like well that's not a good sign like i've gotten to know a pretty broad array of people from all different decades of this activity and i'm very fortunate for that uh, but I'm like, all right, this guy probably has absolutely no clue or no dog in this fight at all. Like, whatever. Right. right. <laughs> so, but yeah. Well, cool. Haters gonna hate. Yep. Yeah. In every sport, activity, <laughs> whatever, there's haters everywhere. But, uh, right. So, Evan, you got anything else? Anything we didn't? We talked about Blue Knights a little bit, uh, Monarch, how it got started, Taha's background. Um, we touched on. Texas As usual, fan. I'm sure there's something that. As soon as we get off, they're like, oh, we should talk about that. Oh, but yeah. Off the top of my head, uh, nah, that's a pretty good segue. We ended talking about sports analyzing because I'm about to go watch this game here in a second. Yeah, right. it's probably towards the end of the first <sighs> quarter. You guys, so yeah. you, you guys think the Warriors are going to pull it off? Are they going to come back? I, say, I think any time it's tough to win three in a row, which is what agreed. they would have to do to win, but we'll see. Yeah. I, I think, think with, if – Go ahead. If, if Kyle Lowry 
doesn't play like he's Steph Curry and Clay Thompson <laughs> plays like Clay Thompson, then I feel like the knowing the Warriors, they're the only team I feel like who could come back. But I still think Toronto is going to take it because they have the momentum of like they're they're the underdog that wants it more. You know, mm-hmm. everyone's talking about how KD and the free agency and this like everyone's already past the finals already. You know, they're yeah, yeah, yep. people. So it's I, I hate that. Yeah. Yep. yeah. But, All right. Well, then let's wrap this sucker up. Thanks everyone for sticking around. Uh, again, just a reminder: subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, follow on Instagram, Facebook. It's all again just aged out podcast. It'll come up, and we'll just be back. Hopefully, with the next episode, it'll be after the season started. We might have might have a few shows that have happened and kind of get to see what everyone's doing this summer. So, Taha, thanks for joining us. I'm sure we'd love to have you on again to talk again, maybe after the summer or um so on so uh yeah we'll see everybody next time peace